Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is longtime Elton John guitar player and musical director, Davy Johnstone. First of all, our attention span is getting shorter and shorter. It's interesting because there's an article that's floating around the internet that talks about how our, our attention span is down to less than that of a goldfish. But it turns out that that's actually data that's been derived from a bad survey. And when you actually follow through and look at all of the sources, there's not much there. That being said, Samsung just did a big study to find out what music is going to be like in 2030. And they did find out that, in fact, our musical attention is down from 12 seconds in the year 2000 down to eight seconds now. A goldfish is only nine seconds, just to give you some comparison. As a result, songs are getting shorter and the choruses come quicker. Now, here's some comparisons. In 1977, the Eagles had a hit with Hotel California. It was six minutes and 30 seconds long, and the chorus didn't come till one minute and 41 seconds into the song. We go up to 1983, Duran Duran, Something I Should Know. Four minutes and 11 seconds, chorus comes at 121. In 1998, Madonna had Frozen. Six minutes and 12 seconds, the chorus comes at 54 seconds. We go up to 2013, Imagine Dragons has Demons. Two minutes and 57 seconds long, the chorus comes at 44 seconds. 2018, Louis Capaldi's Someone You Love clocks in at 302, and the chorus comes at 25 seconds. And last year's Mood by 24 Golden was only 2 minutes and 20 seconds long, and the chorus came at 10 seconds in. So it turns out that 80% of the songs now are less than 4 minutes average. In 1998, the average is 4 minutes and 30 seconds, and now it's down to 303. That being said, short songs are actually no big deal. If you go way back to Buddy Holly and the Beatles and a lot of examples since, you'll find that there's been two-minute songs and two-minute 30 songs all over the place. So that's not a big deal. However, what is a big deal is the fact that artists are now doing those short songs for financial reasons rather than artistic reasons. Here's the reason. You don't get paid until 30 seconds into a song. So in other words, it has to stream for 30 seconds or else you don't get paid. Yes, it might count as a streamer if you, doesn't matter, you don't get paid. But if you can actually have shorter songs and get to the point quicker, chances are you're going to get someone to that 30-second mark. And if the song is short, they may listen to it again and again, and you'll get paid again and again. So having a six-minute song doesn't do you much good when it comes to what happens to your revenue. Anyway, Samsung's survey is pretty ominous in that they predict all songs are going to be shorter still and we won't have any ballads on the radio. So we'll see how that shakes out. I'm not too anxious to find out. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more.
Now, if you listen to the last episode, you heard me talk about the fact that musical instrument and audio companies are getting rolled up. So the smaller companies that have been around for a long time, now the owners want to retire, so they're selling off to bigger companies. One company where that won't happen is Taylor Guitars, because now it's 100% owned by its employees. Yes, all 1,200 employees own a piece of the action using something called an employee stock ownership plan. This company, Taylor Guitars, is really profitable and is really doing well. Just to give you an example, they have 125,000 guitars on order. 125,000. Last month, in one day, they made $17.4 million. Just in one day. So, this company was started in 1994. In 1984, they were only doing about 520 guitars every year. We come up to 2019, it's about 170,000. This is a really profitable company, and if the owners wanted to flip the company to either a larger manufacturer or a venture capitalist, it wouldn't be any problem. Instead, they did the right thing, and they gave it to their employees. Now, it's not the only company where that happened. In 2015, Moog Music did exactly the same thing, and now they're 100% owned by their employees as well. This is a great trend. We hope to see it happen more and more in our business. My guest this week is Davey Johnstone, who's played guitar and been the musical director for the Elton John Band since 1972. During that time, Davey has played on all of Elton's albums and tours. He recently celebrated his 3,000th show with Elton in 2019. Davey's also played and recorded with a wide range of artists, including Rod Stewart, Stevie Nicks, Meatloaf, and Alice Cooper, among many others. During our interview, we talked about the making of Elton's early albums, what it's like to play the hits 3,000 times, how his gear has changed through the years, making a pilgrimage to Muscle Shoals, and much more. I spoke with Davey via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Tell me about the time before Elton. How did you leave Edinburgh? Because sometimes, you know what it's like, you grow up in, in a place and it's hard to break out. Well, I think I was uh, I was just always hell-bent to leave because as much as I love it and I adore Scotland and Edinburgh is a great place to, to grow up. And uh, uh, what happened was I was just so pulled by the whole call of music and, and what it would entail to pursue it, you know, in a, in a fashion that I thought I could probably do it. Um, I had a lot of confidence and you know, I still do. And I think if we know if we're, if we have a shot at doing something, uh, that's really what it is. It's all about purpose and, and, and love of what you're doing and passion. And I literally, by the age of 17, having played already in folk clubs and pubs throughout uh, Scotland, um, you know, I've been playing, getting money for playing since I was 14, you know, mm. which was always very nice. So, so when I, when I finished high school, well, Oh, barely finished high school in Scotland. Uh, I just said, that's it. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to London. Um, and I made a deal with my parents. I said, look, I, you know, love you guys. And I'm going to do this because I have to do it. Uh, and how about we set like a two year deal and uh, I'll go down. If nothing happens in two years, I'll, I'll come back with my tail between my legs and get a real job, which is what you did back in the late sixties. Um, 
But fortunately, you know, things turned out uh, really well. But it was an amazing apprenticeship for me, uh, music-wise, uh, being able to, you know, really study what I wanted to do musically, just like any other guitar-playing kid, you know, in my room, uh, listen to the Beatles whenever I could catch them on, on uh, one of the pirate radio stations, and uh, just sitting in my room, honing my craft and uh, listening to the great, great guitar players that I really aspired to in those days. Um, you know, acoustic players like John Renborn and Bert Jansch and John Martin. Uh, these were my heroes back then, you know. I know that you also play mandolin and banjo and a lot of other acoustic instruments. Did you learn those along the way or was that when you were growing up? It's the same vibe, I think, because I was so drawn to music in all forms. Uh, what happened with the, the mandolin and the banjo became because of the Dubliners, um, a great Irish folk band, um, just amazing. And their banjo player was Barney McKenna, who I got to know, which was wonderful. And I got to play with him a few times. Um, he played the tenor banjo, uh, you know, the Irish tenor. And um, I couldn't believe what this guy was doing. Uh, he was basically taking uh, fiddle music, Irish fiddle music and pipe music and transposing it the way for tenor banjo. And I was blown away. And obviously, it's a very exciting instrument. So when I got to playing it, I realized that the audiences were going nuts during when I'd be playing some of those fast uh, jigs and reels. And they just lose it. Uh, and uh, so it became a permanent part of my repertoire in other bands uh, at that time, folk bands mainly. Um, so the mandolin followed closely because it's the same uh, basic intervals. Uh, it's like a violin. Uh, it's in fifths, you know, and, and uh, so that was an easy one for me to pick up after it. So I found that banjo and mandolin really helped me just spread out a little bit from um, from just playing guitar. It, it really made me approach guitar uh, on a different different level also. It gave me another couple of weapons as well in my arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Since we're here, let's talk about the banjo a little more. Greg Penny is a friend of mine. I'm sure you know. Love Greg. Yeah. When he was doing the surround mixes for some of the early albums, I went up to his house and, and we hung out. And he was showing me the track sheets. And I was surprised how much banjo was on those songs. And it's like, I don't remember hearing it. So uh, you must have been doubling it with something. I mean, he, he didn't sell the tracks up. I wish he would have, because I could have heard for sure. But how did that happen? Um, well, what happened was, well, Elton knew I was you know, a bit of a banjo player. In fact, a hell of a banjo player. I remember playing for the guys in, in uh, the Chateau d'Orville, where we made the first band album, Honky Chateau. And, um, you know, I... They love that. Elton loves all of that folk stuff. He loves it. I mean, he just, you know, that's why he's such a great performer, a great musician, I feel, because he takes in all of it. He knows all about, you know, all the, the heavy folk stuff, the Chieftains, Dubliners, all the way through, you know, to Joni Mitchell and people like that. So he loved that I did all that other stuff. And I also play sitar, which, so what we started doing was we'd use banjo, Sometimes predominantly, like tracks like Honky Cat, which had a you know quite a dominant, a predominant banjo uh, part in the song, uh, but other songs we'd use it for kind of coloring. Just to, you know, I would say, well, that could work really well there if we just have a banjo ghosting 
uh, whatever the other instrument. So I used it, in fact, on Daniel, which is hard to believe. But That was the song. I remember looking at the track sheet and going, wow, how, I don't remember hearing that. Well, it's interesting because when you, when you hear um, uh, Elton's solo on Daniel, which is a Mellotron, which actually he did it in like the first or second take, and it's an amazing mm. melodic, uh, melodic solo. And so when the last verse comes in, uh, following the solo, the solo and the chorus, um, I decided to play the exact same as he did, but have it set back in, in echo. Uh, so if you listen to it again, listen to the last verse, and you'll hear the banjo set back in there, twinkling away in the background. And it, it's pretty cool. We, we used it in uh, some interesting ways back then. You know, there were other tracks that were a bit more folky, um, like Slave, that was like that, and some tracks off Yellow Brick Road, um, where we just used it. It's just been fun to have all these things. Mandolin, we used a lot more. You can really hear that predominantly on, on quite a lot of songs that we do. Um, but yeah, it, it's cool to have these things at your disposal, disposal when you're looking for an interesting, you know, um, thing to work with for, you know, for your palette, what's going to be the musical palette of that particular song. And so I found that mandola, mandocello, and different kinds of banjos, sitar, dulcimer, we've used all of those things. And uh, yeah, it's been great because, you know, that's the other thing. Uh, in the early days, there really wasn't a whole lot of other instruments to draw from. I mean, I do, obviously I do acoustic and electric guitars and 12 strings and open tunings and stuff like that. But to have the other stuff as well was amazing because in those days, there was very little else going on. If you listen to like our first, um, like Honky Chateau, uh, uh, Don't Shoot Me, and then Yellow Brick Road. I mean, it's all the band. It's all the, the guys in the band doing all the overdubs. And I think on Yellow Brick Road, we have like two tracks with strings on them. Uh, by Del Newman, which are extraordinary and wonderful. Um, and one track on Don't Shoot Me by my dear friend, Paul Buckmaster, um, who passed away some time ago, which is another total tragedy for music. You know? Yeah. yeah. Speaking of uh, Honky Chateau, Ken Scott, another mutual friend, I co-wrote his autobiography. Wow. There's a couple of chapters just on the Elton Band and recording. One of the things that just stuck out to me I always and before we even got to this was the the vocals were always so good the background vocals were always so good and he said well yeah you know elton got bored and and he would just go away and then it'd be the three guys in the band that would stay all night and do all the background vocals which i thought wow that's very cool oh yeah absolutely we were we were always glad to get rid of him actually because he you know he literally would get so fucking bored and he'd be he'd be sitting on the couch in any studio and as soon as the background okay we're going to do background vocals it'd be like oh <laughs> you could hear the groans you know yeah because also in those days uh there wasn't the capability to fly parts in after you've done one chorus say with a bulk harmony thing with you know multiple tracking and whatever else uh, it wasn't like you could just take that and then fly it into the next chorus. You'd literally have to do it all again uh, in the next next section. Uh, but yeah, it was great. He loved that because he loved what we did uh, with the with the backgrounds. And you know, as he's mentioned many times, this band was really unique and interesting because we never, nobody ever told anybody else what to do. Um, you know, there were never. It was always like, okay, 
you know, Davey's the guitar player and the, and the, the string guy, he, he does what he wants. And Naja plays drums, Dee plays bass, and I play keyboards. And that's basically what it is. And so it was awesome. So on very, you know, a couple of occasions, he has suggested guitar parts for me. I think maybe two occasions and really good ideas. He's got great ideas because he loves guitar. He would love to be a guitar player, you know, and I've, I've tried teaching him a couple of times to absolutely disastrous effect. <laughs> you know, some people just don't play guitar and yeah, that's yeah. what it is. And, and uh, you know, he's sure a hell of a piano player yeah. uh, and just the best around as far as I'm concerned still is. He's still the greatest in, in my mind. I mean, he's, He's, he's as good as anybody when he gets, when he's rocking and when he's doing his thing and he doesn't take, he takes a very, very, he's very conscientious, but he doesn't take that too seriously. You know, he doesn't say, he doesn't ever say, well, I'm Elton John, the amazing piano player. He never, you know, that never comes into a conversation. He's just so cool about it and so modest about it. Um, but I am always blown away by this guy's musicianship. He's just an absolute monster. Yeah. You guys get on obviously very well. How did you get with the band? How did you get with with Elton? Uh, that actually happened via Gus Dudgeon. You know, uh, again another guy who's passed on yeah. with his dear wife Sheila. Uh, Gus was just a remarkable human being, apart from a brilliant producer. Um, I met him when I was asked to do a thing for a band called Magna Carta in London, and when I was already just starting to do a lot of sessions. You know, I was working on uh, Cat Stevens stuff a little bit and Ralph McTell and people like that. And um, and Gus had me play on this Magna Carta track. We got on famously. So we started hanging out. I'd go into to Trident Studios in London. You know, I'd be the typical young folky, you know, like total fucking hippie, the Afghan coat and the long hair and the whole stuff. And we'd go and have a pizza or something and talk about music. And then he mentioned one day, I'm working with this guy, uh, and he mentioned, you know, his name's Reg, and, and he's a great singer-songwriter, and I think you'd be great playing on a couple of his tracks. I was like, sure, because I never turned a job down. So I said, of course, no problem. So I, I showed up. I didn't know who the guy was from Adam, really. And um, I showed up and met him. He was a very shy, uh, very quiet guy. And... Um, and they showed me what they thought, you know, they'd like me to do on the track. And, you know, I basically fitted right in and um, we got on really well in the studio. Um, I think because we, we both like to work quickly, you know, in, in many cases, people in the studio tend to, well, we're in the studio, so I can take as long as I want, or I can do this over and over and over. Elton's never been like that. And I'm not like that. I mean, uh, that's a kiss of death for creativity as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, to overdo anything. Uh, so we got on famously from the start and actually that's the way it's continued to this day. I read that you had, I guess it was last year, you passed the 3000, uh, show mark with him, which is amazing in itself to do 3000 shows, just to, to do 3000 shows, <laughs> let alone with, with, you know, one band. In that time, you've obviously had to play the hits 3,000 times. How have they evolved over the years? Well, yeah, that's true. It's interesting to know that on the three, see, I didn't know. You don't keep track if you get out of a diary and put another one down, another one yeah, down. Yeah. I don't do that shit, but uh, somebody does. 
so um this guy from uh from who's based part of our, our london uh elton salton john.com thing uh john higgins and he he called me a couple of weeks before and said do you realize you'll be doing your 3000 show in seattle next week or two weeks time and i was like wow that's a lot of fucking shows and it was like no i didn't know that so anyway in seattle we usually have a bunch of friends coming like uh jerry cantrell and and mike Inez from uh, alice and chains will come over and and my dear friend eddie vetter and a couple of his guys and his lovely wife jill and their kids and we've become very good friends and they all came to the tacoma dome in seattle the night of that 3000 gig and it was just an amazing affair. It was so much fun, you know. But, um, yeah, it was just, I don't know how you get to do 3,000 shows. And, and uh, although I do remember my 2,000 show, which was actually in Edinburgh, in my home, well, not in my hometown, but in Glasgow, in Scotland. Um, I don't know when that was, back in, I don't know, 2000 and something. But um, it's, it's remarkable, and I'm blessed and the way the songs have evolved for me um there's a certain celebration in playing some of these songs every night it's difficult for some of the for maybe one or two because you think well there's no point in me trying anything different on this song because it'll seem like i'm reaching you know and anyway people want to hear certain licks or, or riffs that you've done on the original version so i've kind of locked myself into some things um but the 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 joy of playing these great songs and great musical things are, are is still there for Elton and for myself. So really we have fun doing it every night and, um, you know, right up till, till the, you know, March when we forced to stop touring, like everybody else, uh, when we finished in Australia up to the very last show, we were giving, you know, everything as we always do because we love playing and really the songs are only, they're really a vehicle for us to stretch out and jam in the middle of them or at the end. So that's what a lot of that's become. Um, just a really, really, just a celebration of, of what we've done and what we've enjoyed doing and still enjoy doing. Yeah. It seems like the arrangements always breathe. So you, you can go different places if you want, which that makes it exciting because no two shows are ever the same. That's right. And, and funnily enough, um, our sound guy for many, many years, uh, Clive Franks, who lives in New Zealand, he sent me um, something yesterday, which was a uh, from 1976, uh, a show in London, where we're doing a version of Hercules, and it is awesome. I could not believe it. I mean, just insane, insane how good it was and how energetic it was. Because um, you forget, you know, again, if you're doing 3,000 shows, you don't remember a show 850 or something. You know, and it just blows me away every time I hear something. And you, regardless of which version of the band it was, and there have been quite a few since those days in the seventies. Um, you know, the bands have changed a lot. Um, so it is great to hear that those things from back then. And you know, the other thing about live work now, or at least you know, before we were forced to stop, um, is we have an amazing crew. I mean, a remarkable crew. I mean, our sound, our front of her, her front FOH guy, uh, Maddie Herr, is unbelievable. Um, our monitor guy, Alan Richardson, is extraordinary. Uh, you know, all the guys in our crew are amazing. Uh, and we're very much a family and like to think of ourselves that way. You know, it's just the way it is. And I think there's a real pride 
amongst the whole crew that we're still doing this. They're very proud. The crew is very proud of us and we're very proud of them. It's a very interesting, you know, combination of, of people and uh, we just love each other. And that's the way to do on the road, I think. Yeah, no kidding. That doesn't happen very often, really. It doesn't happen very often that you get a, a group of people. I mean, Nigel and, and you and Elton from virtually the beginning and then to, to stay there and be happy. That's right. Well, I'm not saying we're walking around whistling, you know, Dixie <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Far from it. But, but you know, the way that we correspond to each other is extremely, uh, it's, just a, it's just very electric, the whole thing. We all, I mean, I know what Nigel's going to play. You know, mm. he's my brother. I mean, we've been playing so many years together. And there was many years where he wasn't a part of our band because it went through so many changes and we had so many other drummers in that interim. You know, we had uh, uh, Charlie Morgan and Kurt Biscara and, you know, all Jack Bruno and, uh, you know, Sugarfoot from Michael Jackson's band. We had all these great drummers over the course of all these years that Nigel wasn't in the band. So I'm so glad that I was able to petition to get him back in because things change and you never think, well, you think, well, what's it going to be like now? Is he going to be able to do that? And, and uh, you know, it's just great to, to, that Elton, myself, and Nigel are, and Ray Cooper. I mean, my God, what a great member of the band Ray has, has always been, really. He's always been that extra member, yeah. you know, the fifth member when it was just the four-piece band. And then he did a, a two-man show with, with Elton um, for, I think, most of 1970 nine maybe i'm not certain um and they went to russia and all over the place and raised an extraordinary musician too so yeah i just i'm very blessed and very grateful that we have all these talented people around it's just remarkable how has your gear changed from when you first started with delton to the way it is now it's gone through all kinds of changes i mean i think it started off initially because having come from basically a folk setup and then going into you know, a big rock band and all that, you know, it was like, well, what do I use? You know, and um, somebody gave me a, a Fender Twin. I think that was the first thing. And it was fine, but I never loved it until uh, I think I bought myself a couple of things that I loved. Like I, I bought myself uh, a Champ, a Fender Champ. And holy shit, we used that so much in the early albums. Um, and then a, um, a deluxe reverb, which I adored as well. And um a Vox AC30. Those were the mainstays of the, shall we say, the early 70s, along with an, uh, an amp I had made by Ted Wallace, uh, an amp maker in London, and that was great. And we occasionally, I'd use a Marshall. I'd use a Marshall, you know, not very often because it wasn't really fitting in with our sound. I mean, our, our thing, it's not like I'm a guitar player who's going to go to the front of the stage, you know, for half of the set and blow solos. That's not what Elton John thing is about. I mean, I have plenty of times and moments in the set where I can do my thing and that's fine. But I've always been a believer in uh, enhancing the songs uh, and making the song better, not playing all over it and fucking everything up. You know, I've, and I've heard that done too, and it's a shame. Um, but from then until I think the big... Um, the big epiphany for me was was uh, Mesa Boogie sent me their first two amps back in 1975 when I was in Colorado. And I immediately loved those amps. And I used them all through the 80s. 
and I still like to use them on recording. Um, so I kept the the old original Woody with the bamboo front. And oh kept yeah. That, uh, and in London, and uh, Adrian Colley, our our archivist, has got that firmly under lock and key <laughs> there, along with some really cool stuff. But yeah, you know, I tried the whole. I went the whole gamut of working with. Um, you know, having the Bradshaw pedal rig in the 90s and that whole giant thing. that I loved that and some of the fun that came along with it. But it was kind of like rocket science to me, too much rocket science. It was almost like, well, this is, I'm a guitar player. I don't need to preset this and do this and set that. It's like, fuck that. I, you know, if I can't get enough through my guitar that I'm using and the amp that I'm using and a few stomp boxes, then I, I don't know, it, it all becomes a little too much for me when it's like that, when you're reliant so much on your gear. So I've gone very much back with the help of my tech, Rick Salazar. I've gone right back to using basically two uh, Husen Kettner Pure Tone amps and, um, and you know, a few great pedals I love. Again, Husen Kettner make a wonderful uh, Rotosphere, which is a Leslie yeah, yeah. Uh, sounder like wonderful pedal. And they do a great uh, tube cruncher as well, which is insane. I use a volume pedal, maybe, um, you know, a DDL and, you know, a bit of course. But, you know, again, too much effects coming from the stage, I think, screws with your front of a house guy. You've got to have faith in the guy who's doing the sound out there, like you have in the studio, you know, because any engineer from Ken Scott, as you mentioned, who's a wonderful engineer, a classic, all the way to the, the cats today, they're like a kind of a flat sound, so they can mess with it later. And I think that's important, you know. It's an interesting story. I used Ken for a, a, a tracking session that I was producing, and uh, this is a few years ago. And we did something with the drum setup, and he did his whole thing with drums, and then we decided we're going to in the middle of the song, have a whole separate kit. It sounds crazy, but it you know it seemed to work there. And Ken didn't change his mics. He didn't change anything. And I said to him, "Don't, don't you want to test this?" He said, "No, it's going to work." And sure enough, it <laughs> did. And I realized then that he was EQing the mics, not the instruments. So he'd always get the same thing. You know, I was like, "Wow, that wouldn't approach." It's very cool. Oh yeah, it was very very hip, and and it's very very. English, I think, yeah. way of working. You know, he's obviously from the school of, you know, those guys, Jeff Emmerich and the Beatles guys who were coming up and doing such, you know, unbelievably cool things. Uh, and, you know, with Ken, it seemed to be everything in where you place the mics as well. Yeah. And then, as you say, how you EQ, what's, what's going to be hitting them. He astounded me on many occasions um, with things like the overdub piano thing and just very speeding very slightly because we'd never heard anything like that. And when we heard that effect, it was like, holy shit, this is something so new and so, you know, just unbelievable. That was astounding to me. And, and, and the way Ken can, um, well, I mean, working with Barry pretty much at the same time as he was working with us, he's come, he'd come off an album with David and he'd be in the studio with us. In fact, on many occasions, We'd be mixing an album or a track at Trident with Ken and Gus, and I'd be in there helping out. And David would pop his head in and go, "Are you guys ready yet? Can I get in there and do my track?" <laughs> you know, because Ken worked with him also. You know, so um, it was very much that time so much fun because people were coming in with, with so many new ideas that were just to change the whole course of recording. Music has changed so much in the time 
that you've been doing it. Was there ever a point in your career when you thought, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here? This is not, all of a sudden, everything is slowed down a lot. It's happened many times. It's happened many times. Yeah, the first time it really hit me was in 1980, 79, 80, when uh, the first time somebody brought a, a drum machine into the studio. And, you know, I'd heard earlier and in, in like around about 84, we in fact use a, uh, whatever the latest uh, model of the, the Lindrum was, we used on um, Too Low for Zero and Breaking Hearts albums with Elton and uh, those albums when, we, when the original band came back together. And, and we enjoyed using it. It was great fun because basically there was a lot more, it was a lot simpler, there were a lot of presets and bang, hit that one and get your speed and that's it. But then when the whole drum machine, the DMX thing came in and all the rest of it, and I'm going like, this is not cool. Um, because suddenly we've got, you know, the, the tempos are all rigid and nobody's playing for fun and, you know, uh, using their creativity anymore. And for sure, I know the technology got better and better and it's extraordinary today and that's fine. Um, what's happening with all the stuff in Pro Tools and Logic over the last, the last 20 years is totally remarkable and you know what you can do now but yeah that time in around about 80 i was getting this horrible feeling and then again in the mid 80s when it, it became very clear that sequencing and you know all this uh you know starting the track with computerized issues and sequences and computerized bass parts and all the rest of it that was becoming the norm and people were going isn't this fucking great isn't this so cool and I'd be sitting there going, no, it's not. It's really not cool at all. And sure, there's some great sounding records from back there. And that's fine. But I'm glad to say that wasn't really a lasting thing for people that like to play parts, you know? Yeah. So, you know, obviously, you're gonna, still going to hear that shit in some, in some records. And that's fine. And it's a cool sound. And people will go, wow, what's that? I never heard that before. Um, but I think like everything else, I really feel that, effects like those should be used as sparingly as the song dictates you know not using something to just write a song or write you know a rap around or i just think i'm just a, maybe a purist in that way um i like things a bit more organic you know yeah yeah i know well it's funny if you listen to whatever's the top 40 top 50 you know in pop Everything is so rigid because, you know, you have basically beat makers that are at home that are doing it and throwing vocals on top for the most part. And there's very little playing. And you can tell that these people haven't really played in clubs and paid their dues or went through any of that where you kind of learn your chops and learn how to deal with an audience. And Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting because um, my, my son, Charlie, who's 22... Uh, he's just finishing off at USC, uh, the, the Thornton School, um, on a music production program. And he, he originally got in there initially for his piano playing. He's a wonderful jazz piano player. Um, but he's a beat maker. You know, he sits at home doing, doing that and doing his stuff. But we've been doing a lot of work together, especially during this whole pandemic. And... Um, you know, I love what he does and, and uh, it's, you know, not what I would do, but I mean, I love what he's doing with the beats and different things and ideas, but he's been working a lot with me, uh, engineering my stuff. <clears throat> I'm sitting in the conservatory playing acoustic guitar 
and he'll just do, I'll say, give me a shaker sound or something like that. And I'll play, I'll play it to that. And I'll start with an acoustic part and being a good engineer as he's a great engineer, actually, as he is, it sounds amazing. And then I'll stick on maybe another part and then I'll put on some bass and then something else. And I think it's teaching him quite a lot. Well, I know it is. It's showing him quite a lot because it's showing him how tracks get built up old school, you know, um, and not even the, the idea we're not able to do, obviously, three or four people in a room together, but more just here's the amp or here's the acoustic guitar, put the mic in front of it and see what comes up and, and you deal with the, you know, the outcome. And it's really been awesome. We, we've come up with some really cool tracks. I'm working with a great lyricist called Rick Otto. And um, and we're coming up with some great shit, and it's so much fun because I'm getting to go back to my roots. I know it's a cliche, but I'm actually going a bit deeper than my roots, and um, and I'm writing some pretty cool stuff that's reminiscent of what I remember myself doing back in the late '60s, early '70s. That actually Ken was helped me do. Um, Ken Scott was the engineer on a, a solo album I did. Um, called Smiling Face, which Elton wanted me to do for his label. And Ken did extraordinary work on that. And we had so much fun using all my range of instruments and and different musician friends. And, and uh, it was just an awesome project. It's funny you should mention all that because when you think back to your roots and when you think back to uh, really what Elton does and, and what you do with them, Everything is really based on arrangement of the band and how everything fits together. Whereas if you look at modern production techniques, many times it's, oh, I have an idea. Let's put it on. I have another idea. I have another idea. Okay, let's sort it out later. Rather than building up the arrangement so everything is really tight and symbiotic. Exactly. You should probably release that statement to the general public of music you know, right now. <laughs> That's exactly right, man. That's exactly the way it is. It's like... Well, see, I, again, it's wonderful, the technology, what can be done. But again, it's all overload now because you can do anything you want, basically. But I think that's when the song or the piece disappears up its own ass because, quite frankly, you, you just can you know, become this massive, ridiculous thing. When you only had 16 tracks or 24 tracks, or in most of the Beatles albums eight track you know some of them four track when you are limited in that way you have to make choices on the on the spot you have to decide well do i want this this effect this echo for example do i want this because i'm going to have to print it now and use it if that's what we're going to do and that's what we do we'd make a decision and move on you know um whereas now it's just you can do as i say you can do everything and it's just it's too much uh, information and I think that's why it's all becoming a little bit sanitized. Um, I'm not saying all music's like that, by you know, absolutely not. But I find that most of the music that I tend to um, gravitate towards is stuff that's a bit more organic and and maybe played really well. Some of the bluegrass stuff and and some of the stuff that comes out of of, of Nashville and different places like that is just so well played and so because. In my mind, the players in that genre are so outstanding at their instruments. They're just ridiculously good, you know. Um, 
and their whole sensibilities are geared towards the song or the piece they're working with. You know, in, in the old bluegrass days, it was one mic, you know, in the middle of the room and yeah. the guy with the guitar and the singer would be up front and then he'd move back when the mandolin player would move in and play a solo and he'd move back, the banjo player would come in and the bass player and so on. Well, I mean, that's, that's the cool thing about music. And I think that's the thing that we've lost, as you said, about performance, about paying your dues and about finding out how you do that in public because most of the younger musicians don't really have a clue what that is right now. Yeah. Speaking of one mic, are you familiar with the one mic YouTube channel? Oh yeah. John Cunnerbury is a one mic YouTube channel where he records, you know, everything with one mic and just places everybody. He has great players obviously, but it's fascinating how great everything can sound. If you haven't seen that. You know, I haven't. I'll have to check that out. And as a matter of fact, he also goes to like, he went to Sun Sound and did it in the original Sun Studio. He went to some places like that, some famous studios that are known for, you know, their acoustics and everything. And, and you know, one mic. It's, it's terrific. Yeah. It's terrific. Anyways, there's something to check out. It's awesome. Like Muscle Shoals, maybe. Yes. Muscle yeah. Shoals, maybe down there. It was... Yeah, I made a pilgrimage down there, in fact, and uh, back in the 70s, it was just it was just amazing, you know, just beautiful. Oh, you were there during the good time then with the swampers and all. Yeah, it was amazing because the session guys from down, I mean, we just showed up down there. We decided, I think we were like in, we were somewhere in Alabama anyway, and we decided to do a day trip to Muscle Shoals because we'd obviously heard all about it and who recorded there and different people. So my girlfriend at the time was Kiki D. And uh, so myself and Kiki and our bass player, Dee Murray, who passed in, in uh, 93, which is so, so sad. One of the great bass players of all time. But we all jumped in a, a rental car and, and went down there for the day. And we could not believe it. It was so funky and so fun. And it was, there was nobody really there at the time. But Barry Beckett came in and he in turn made a call to Roger Hawkins. You know, you should get down here. Some of Elton's guys are here, you know, and and then David uh, Hood and and all these musicians started coming in yeah. just to hang out with us, you know. Yeah. And and so we laid down um we laid down just a, a thing that we literally just I came up with a riff and we started playing it and um and somebody I think Kiki had a version of it and she sent me it and like do you remember this you know and of course I did and uh, just awesome I love that thing about okay. Here we are. Here's a riff. Bang. Let's just do it yeah. and, and record it. And in fact, there's some good friends of mine who are working that way right now. You may have heard of Julian Bonetta, who's a wonderful record producer. He's been doing all kinds of great stuff. And um, his father, Peter, is a dear friend of mine. He, Peter did um, a couple of big records in uh, back in the 90s. Uh, he did Smokey Robinson's One Heartbeat. He did uh, an album with Judy Collins. Actually, I helped him out on and he's working with some guys right now, and um, they're going to kill me because I can't remember the name of the band. <laughs> but they're lovely guys, Forrest and Jimmy. And um, they asked me to come over, and I just took a mandolin with me. And we're sitting around, and we're talking and chatting away and getting to know each other a little bit. And I picked up the mandolin and just played something that came into my head. And they were like, play that again. Keep playing that. Keep playing and they started doing their thing around it and beats and different things. And uh, Peter sent me the track a couple of days ago, and it just sounds awesome, you know. So 
there are those possibilities of taking something, obviously, that's really cool and really organic and really whatever, uh, just done on one mic, and then turning it into something great. And I think that's all extremely valid now. It's like, you know, it's all art, isn't it? It's yeah. all part of what you what you make it these days. And, and you know, I've got to contend with whatever. I mean, I love what my kids listen to. I love what my youngest, Elliot, listens to Billie Eilish and, and uh, people like that. And it's astounding stuff. It's great. You know, I have a hard time with some of the hip hop stuff because I, I just, I, I, that's just not my area. I don't, I'm not from there. You know, yeah. um, I can respect it. You know, they probably have a hard time with bluegrass too. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Tell me about your daughter. I understand your daughter is doing something very cool in the music business. Uh, well, actually, not in the music business, but in the clothes business. She, she, uh, yeah, she's an artist, and um, she studied in New York. I, she went right out of high school to to college and to the new school in, in New York City, which freaked us out. She was going so far away, you know, because yeah. we were here in California. Um, but she's great, and um, she uh, got her bachelor of arts and all the rest of it, and came back here and came back to to live in the house here, which we love, obviously, having her here. Uh, she, we got her our own place. Uh, she found her own place um, in Los Feliz. And when I was in Australia over Christmas, my whole family came out to visit. I was in the middle of that tour with Elton, part of the Farewell Yellow Bit Road Tour. And she brought with her uh, one whole giant suitcase full of um, white painter pants from Dickies, right? Her idea was she was going to start painting, hand painting these pants. And, uh, you know, she's a really amazing artist. So I was like, I'm sure it's going to be fun. And she started doing it every day. She'd, you know, sit in the outdoors. We had this great beach house in, in uh, Cairns and in Queensland in Australia. And, um, and it was just an amazing environment. And every day she would spend four or five hours painting some of these pants. And by the end of the month that she was there, she had some really cool things going on. So when she got back to LA home after the holidays and I got back after my end of my tour, she started, she showed me all the stuff that she'd done. And she said, look, I'm going to start putting them up on my Instagram page and I'm going to make a website and I'm going cool. Well, that thing has gone completely viral, completely nuts. I mean, one of her friends um, and her, her company's uh, it's called JJ uh, so the pants of JJ's and, and the tank tops and the fleeces and the T-shirts and all this stuff, it's gone nuts. And um, Reese Cooper, um, her designer friend, gave a pair to, I think it was Bella Hadid. Um, and see, I don't know who's hot these days and Instagram and shit, because I don't even, yeah. I don't, somebody else looks after my Instagram page and my Facebook page. I have no clue what it says, really. And um so from there, uh, Bella turned other people onto it, and she posted it on her thing. And before you knew it, everybody wanted these pants. And uh, so it's awesome. She's doing so well. And, uh, yeah, I'm just so proud of her. And I love her clothes. I mean, she gave me a pair, and I've worn it. I've worn these pants five days out of seven at least during this whole pandemic. So, And they're awesome. So check out JJ's, man. You never know. You yeah. might, it's a return to the, the clothing of the Incredible String Band or that kind of shit. You know, really cool stuff and, and very, very, ooh, you know. I'm going to check <laughs> it out for sure. 
Last question, Davey. Thank you for your time today. This is great. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you, getting to know you a little you bit. You too, Bobby. You're welcome. What's the best piece of business or music advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, you know, for me, I had to learn basically everything from scratch. Number one, it was learning to play my instrument really well. That was number one. That was key to me because see, when you're growing up as I did in an environment when whatever you see on the TV or whatever you hear on, 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 uh, on the radio, uh, in those days, it was like, as I said earlier, pirate radio, the stuff was so cool. I mean, if, if you couldn't pick up a guitar and play Day Tripper, then to me, you were fucking nobody. You know, you, yeah, yeah. you know, this guy, forget about it. You know, or Hank Marvin's stuff, uh, Hank from the Shadows. I mean, astounding guitar tones and playing. So number one was that, learning to play and then developing those skills so that you become more rounded, so that you can basically take your skill and play them in pretty much any environment. And that's, that's, that became key for me because I wanted to be a studio player. I thought I could probably apply my skills to that, and I was able to do that. Um, the next thing was having a passion to chase your dream. So important. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do it because it's bullshit. You can do anything you want, absolutely anything. You know, if I can leave Edinburgh at the age of 16 and a half and go to London and make it, then, you know, I believe that anybody can do it if they have belief in themselves and that they have the talent. Um, the next thing, obviously, is having business sense. Um, I had none, zero. I mean, so right up to the point, even when I was working with Elton, um, you know, it was really like, oh, I'm glad, well, this is good. I'm making more money, but I had no idea how to hold on to it. And I had no, you know, that was not my plan to hold on to any money because I thought this was just going to be then. So 1972 to 1975, I really didn't do much of anything as far as looking after my money. And I had a few friends uh, and I had one accountant who helped me sort things out a little bit. And I'll be forever grateful to, to him for putting me on that just putting them off but yeah you know it's like and if i were you my the most important piece of advice i'd give anybody right now is you know what i know it's supposed to be glamorous you know the sex drugs and rock and roll and i am you know and i certainly can't say that i never did any of it because i did all of it way too much um but really it was retroactive to, to to my career my health and everything so i'm grateful that the last 11 years have given me uh, the power to carry on in a more clear, you know, with a clearer head and um, and playing it purely out of my heart and going back to the way I was when I started. So, you know, don't get romanced by the the whole sex, drugs, rock and roll thing because it's fun, fun for a while, but there's too many friends and too many people I know who didn't make it. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send it to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>